If you were writing the story of Jesus, what would you start with? Would you start with feeding of the 5,000 or the resurrection? Would you start with water into wine? Would you start with raising Lazarus from the dead? Would you start with the Sermon on the Mount? What would you start with? When you tell the greatest story ever told, you gotta kick it off with a bang, don't you? The best news you've ever heard about Jesus, Lord of all of the universe, resurrected from the dead, savior of mankind, you gotta kick it off with a bang. And when Matthew writes his story of Jesus, he kicks it off with a bang. If you have your Bible, I would invite you to turn to Matthew chapter one, verse one. Here's how Matthew starts the greatest story ever told. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. Wait, what? The genealogy? And then for 17 verses, it's like the father of this, the father of this, the father of him, the father of her, the, the begat and begat and begat and a bunch of names I don't even know. Matthew, you can't start with something better than a genealogy for crying out loud. But listen, for Matthew, the story of Jesus does not begin with Jesus. The story of Jesus begins thousands of years before Jesus even came. The story of Jesus tracks back to the nation of Israel and it tracks back to Abraham and it tracks back to David and it tracks back even to Adam. The story of Jesus begins long before Jesus even comes. That's why for Matthew, the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah really does kick the story off with a bang. Because for his readers who understood Abraham and Isaac and David and Jacob and the Exodus and the Babylonian exile, they understood all those things. They were deeply ingrained into who they were and who they are. Because they understood them, they understood when Jesus the Messiah entered in, when God became incarnate in Jesus of Nazareth, he entered into a story that had started long ago. Christopher uh, J.H. Wright wrote a book called Knowing Jesus Through the Old Testament, and he points out that for Matthew, there are these three kind of big chunks of time uh, that, that he points to as kind of the mold that Jesus enters into. Let, let's go back to Matthew chapter one. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Skip to verse six, please. And Jesse, the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Skip to verse 12. After the exile to Babylon, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, that's verse 16, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Look at verse 17. This is the cap off of Matthew's kind of intro story here. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 
14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now, the reality is there wasn't exactly 14 generations as we would uh, do that today and calculate that today. But back then, it was pretty typical to skip generations at times when you presented a genealogy. That's not just in the, in the Bible, but that's in all texts of antiquity. And so for Matthew, in verse 17, when he says there are 14 generations, 14 generations, and 14 generations... He, he's doing this thing with numbers that he really likes to do. Numbers are really important for Matthew. The number three is really important for Matthew. The number seven is really important for Matthew. These are, these are perfect numbers, and that, came, that comes from the Old Testament. And so when Matthew says there were three sets of 14 generations, seven times two is 14, and three sets of 14 generations. So that's three double sevens. That's pretty perfect for Matthew. And those three chunks of time, Christopher J.H. Wright points out in his book, uh, that those three chunks of time are Abraham up to David, David up to the Babylonian exile, and the Babylonian exile up to Jesus. Those are those three chunks of time. And so when Jesus enters the picture, it's like pouring water into an ice cube tray. Stick with me on this one. Stick with me. Picture an ice cube tray. When you pour water into that, it shapes and molds that water. It, it, it comes out with a form and a function. So when Jesus is poured into the mold of the Old Testament, it shapes how he sees himself. It shapes how the writers of the New Testament see Jesus. It shapes their understanding of Jesus of Nazareth, what his form is, what his function is, how he understands himself and how he enters into the world. So for us, if we endeavor to understand the life and work of Jesus, we must understand the story that precedes him. We must understand the story that precedes him. We must understand that ice cube tray that provides the form into which Jesus is poured. That's what we're doing in this series. I want for us to understand how the Old Testament provides the form for Jesus. I want us to understand how the Old Testament precedes Jesus and sets the stage for Jesus. Because for Jesus, that's how he understood himself. And the writers of the New Testament understood him as such as well. So today I wanna to start off with this very first piece of our ice cube tray. And it's God as creator. In the Hebrew mindset, it is so critical to understand that God created all that we can see and all that we can't see. That was a critical piece of the Hebrew mindset uh, pre-Jesus and even post-Jesus. Because for a lot of other kind of religious folks out there, especially folks of antiquity, they were polytheistic. That means they believed in a lot of different gods. So the, there wasn't necessarily this one and only creator God. But in the Hebrew mindset, there absolutely was. And this becomes so critical 
in the Old Testament scripture. Let, let me just point out a couple of these scriptures for you. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 5. This is what the Lord says, the creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. Psalm 96, 11 and 12. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Job chapter 12, verse 7. Ask the animals and they will teach you or the birds in the sky and they will tell you. Speak to the earth. It will teach you or let the fish of the sea inform you. Which of all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every creature and the breath of all mankind. Psalm chapter 95, verses 4 and 5. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. These are just a couple selections from the Old Testament scripture that point to God as creator of all the earth. He owns them. He holds them. He spoke them into existence. This becomes so critical for the Old Testament and how the people in the Old Testament understood and saw God as creator. And God as creator really begins in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. That's Genesis chapter one, verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was void and without form, and the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the deep. And God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God begins to create. Th those Hebrew words there, in the beginning, God created, and forgive my pronunciation here, I know I'm going to butcher it, but it's Bereshit bara Elohim. You, you can actually Google that and, and hear somebody who actually speaks Hebrew reading those words if you want to. Bereshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, God created. That was so critical. God as creator for the Hebrew mindset. So here's the deal. In this particular case, in Genesis chapter 1, the author is not primarily explaining in historic or scientific terms the beginning of creation and humanity. Instead, Genesis is really theologically interpreting the relationship between God and the human world, namely that he created it by the power of his word. God as creator, critical. Now listen, what in the world does that have to do with Jesus? Well, let's now fast forward to the New Testament. John chapter one, verse one. In the beginning, now, for the person who understands the Old Testament, for the person uh, who lived and breathed the Old Testament, for the person who understood the law and the prophets, for the person who understands these words and was deeply ingrained in his or her heart, Bereshit bara Elohim, in the beginning, when John begins his gospel with those words, John is calling us back to the story of the Old Testament. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That Word there is Jesus. That's who John is talking about. It's a person, Jesus. He was with God 
in the beginning. There's those words again. And watch verse 3. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Mankind, Can you hear the language in John's gospel? In the beginning, repeated twice, Jesus as creator, through him all things were made, John says. Jesus was the light of mankind. That's the very first thing that God spoke into existence. Can you hear him grabbing that language from the Old Testament specifically to hearken us back to God as creator? This is how John kicks off his gospel. Okay, let's go to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1. This is a letter to the church uh, that's included in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Can you tell I'm excited about this stuff? Man, I love this stuff. This gets me so excited. All right, Hebrews 1. Okay, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets and at many times and in various ways. Okay, already the author of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 is calling us back to our ancestors and the prophets. Now, for the first century Hebrew that would be reading this letter, that's the audience of Hebrews, when when there's a call to our ancestors and the prophets, that's Abraham, that's David, that's Isaac and Jacob, that's Micah and Nehemiah and Jeremiah, the prophets of the Old Testament. That's where the author of Hebrews wants to point us. Verse 2, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by his son. You see how Jesus is now being poured into that mold. Whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. There it is again, God is creator. The son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Now skip to verse 10, watch this. Hebrews chapter one, verse 10. He also says, in the beginning, Lord, You laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. Do you see it? Do you hear it? There it is again. In the beginning, he laid the foundations of the earth. So when the author of Hebrews begins to explain to us the power, the life and work, the role of Jesus in the world, he, the author of Hebrews, wants us to understand Jesus through the lens of the Old Testament. Do you see how the New Testament is deliberately tying Jesus with the Old Testament story of God as creator? That's just one piece, and that's just a couple of selections. We'll be talking much more about so many other selections in the coming weeks. But but here's where where I wanna start with today. God is creator, so why does that matter? that the authors of the New Testament understood Jesus through the lens of God as creator. Why does that matter? Here's why it matters. Now, if you're jotting notes down, jot this down. Jesus inaugurates God's recreation. Jesus inaugurates God's recreation. He catalyzes it. He starts it that he initiates God's recreation. And and when you jot this down, make sure you put a little dash between re and creation. Because if not, you say Jesus inaugurates God's recreation and that's not what we mean. He, He inaugurates, he catalyzes God's redemptive plan, his restoration of his 
perfect creation. Because pre-sin, the world was perfect. Pre-sin, there was this Hebrew word shalom, peace, harmony, all things worked together. This is, this is the understanding of Genesis chapter one. This is God's perfect creation. Then sin entered the world and subsequently and consequently, the world was fractured. If you read the rest of the Old Testament, there is ample evidence all throughout that the world is fractured and is in need of redemption. God's creation was no longer perfect. If you read the story of David and his children, if you read the story of Tamar, if you read the story of the nation of Israel, some of you that are familiar with the Old Testament, even just a little bit, you know that there was some bad stuff happening back then. Correct. Because God's creation was rent asunder. It was fractured. We needed a re-creator. That's Jesus. Jesus brings restoration and redemption, not just uh, so that our souls could be saved and go to heaven when we die. We talk about this all the time, but, but so that the world could be set to rights. Now, how badly does our world need redemption right now? You watch the news. You know the brokenness that's happening all around the world. You know how the world is responding to racism, to violence, to uh, people being oppressed. We need re-creation. I was thinking last night about the Me Too movement. You know the Me Too movement. I, I love the Me Too movement. You know why? Because I'm a human being. Also, I have a daughter. I, I'm thrilled about the Me Too movement. But listen, the Me Too movement is not necessary if our world is perfect, right? The Me Too movement is a response to brokenness. And pre-sin, in God's perfect creation, there was no brokenness. So the Me Too movement would not have been necessary. See, this is what Jesus came to do. He came to heal that brokenness. Not just so our souls could go to heaven when we die, but so that God could restore his perfect creation. This is why it's so critical for us to understand the Old Testament, God as creator, because when the authors of the New Testament call on that story, very deliberately, by the way, they're reminding us that Jesus inaugurates God's re-creation. Now, one more piece of that creation story that we've got to focus on, and this one's really fun. I love this one too. Because if you know the story of God's creative work when he spoke all things into existence, it kind of comes to a tipping point. It kind of it comes to an apex, to a pinnacle. The very last thing that God does, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground, just like we sang to start our service, all creatures of our God and King. God made mankind in his image. 
with a unique ability to relate to God in a way that animals can't, with creative power even in the world. We can create in the world. God made us in his image. And this is why even that the Old Testament says, don't kill other people. Why? Because they were made in the image of God. Each and every human being has unique, unique value and intrinsic worth because they're made in the image of God. This was actually new back then because people just killed each other, right? I mean, that that was just kind of a, a normal thing. But God, when he speaks humanity into existence. And when he speaks his Old Testament law, when he says, don't kill other people, that's news. <laughs> that's a kind of a news flash. And the reason why is he says they were made in the image of God. And this becomes so critical and so intrinsic to all of the Old Testament and to the Hebrew mindset. I'm just going to call on one verse just to show you. Just one. There's so many, so many more than just this one, but it's Psalm chapter 8, verse 3. Listen, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have set in place, right? Calling on creation, reminding us of God's creative power in the cosmos. Listen, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You've made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands and you put everything under their feet. All flocks and herds and animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish of the sea and all that swim in the paths of the seas. Humankind made in God's image was the very last thing he did. The the, the, the apex, the pinnacle of his creation. But that broke, right? It broke. It fractured. Mankind sinned. And we see the results of it all across our world. So when the authors of the New Testament begin to use language like this, now listen, this is Romans chapter 5. Paul's talking here, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin... And in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. So here's what Paul is saying. Sin entered into the world through one man, Adam, the first man. That's what that word means, by the way. Original man, Adam. Sin entered the world and subsequently, consequently, death through one man, Adam. Verse 17 For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, still talking about Adam, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ? So Paul is essentially saying Jesus is kind of the second Adam, right? He's the second Adam, verse 18. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. Just as through the disobedience of one man, many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, many will be made righteous. Do you see what Paul's doing here? He's saying that original man sinned, and because he sinned, death and brokenness entered the world. But through Jesus and his complete and total obedience to the law, because of his 
crucifixion and resurrection, because of the atonement, because of all those things, now life enters the world through Jesus. Jesus is the second Adam. So what's Paul really getting at here? What he's saying is that Jesus is humankind's second chance and third chance and fourth chance and fifth and sixth and on and on and on it goes. This is our second chance. Jesus is our second chance. Whereas sin and brokenness and hurt and pain entered the world through Adam, life and light and goodness enter the world through Jesus. That's why the atonement is so critical. That's why being in Christ is so critical because we are clothed in Him. He restores us. He redeems us. He saves us from all that sin and pain and death that entered the world through one man and we're now living in and we're part of. He redeems us from that. Jesus is humankind's second chance and third and fourth and fifth. I would invite you today to begin to see Jesus through the eyes of the Old Testament, through the lens of the Old Testament, that Jesus inaugurates God's recreation and that Jesus is humankind's second chance. It helps us, the Old Testament, this lens helps us to understand the life and work of Jesus. I'm so excited for the rest of this series as we continue to learn and see and know Jesus through the eyes of the Old Testament. Let's pray together. God, thank you for Jesus. God, thank you that the story of Jesus does not begin with Jesus, but you were writing the story of Jesus generations upon generations before he came. God, we would ask that you would give us wisdom, give us insight into these things. Help us to understand that you, God, inaugurated your recreation in and through Jesus. Help us understand that he is humankind's second chance, third and fourth and fifth chance, that he redeems and restores our soul. And God, help us to walk in that path as followers of Jesus, that we would be the kind of people that recreate in the world, that bring the hope and healing and redemption that Jesus brought. Help us be the kind of people that give others a second, third, fourth, and fifth chance, just as Jesus did. God, thank you. Thank you for the Old Testament. Thank you for the New Testament. Thank you for Jesus and for what he does in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.